Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. I'd like to say thank you again to all of you for being here and spending your Friday night hearing about something that I am super passionate about. And I just want to start again by thanking the association and thanking the foundation, thanking Mr. Getty for all of his 50 years of um, work with the foundation. I don't know if any of you who are not associated realize the impact that the foundation has had on many of us. I think there's probably not a person who studies human origins who have not benefited from the Leakey Foundation. In fact, um, it's a particular honor for me because my very first research grant was from the Leakey Foundation back a couple of years ago now, and it started me on the path that led me here today. And I have been funded several times over the years, and you'll see throughout the presentation that I'll be citing some of the research that the Leakey Foundation has contributed, and I'm but one of the many thousands of people that have benefited um, over these not just 50 years of Mr. Getty's involvement with the foundation, but of the whole foundation all. So it is really exciting for me to be here. And I think all of us in the room are here because we share a passion and a desire to understand who we are, where we came from, how we got to be this amazing and biologically unusual species. These are just some depictions of some artists have made of some of our earliest ancestors over the years. But when you see pictures like this, they're encapsulating a lot of research by a lot of people that led us to our hypotheses or ideas about what our earliest ancestors may have been like. And so how do we learn about our ancestors? Well, the only source of evidence we have for when the different key features of who we are appeared is the fossil record. The fossil record tells us what evolved when and with what. For example, over 100 years ago, there was a guy named Charles Darwin, some of you may have heard of, a pretty bright guy. And Charles Darwin had the idea that what really makes us unique is our big brains and our language and our culture and so forth. And so that must be what set our lineage apart from our eight forebears initially. But only 98 years ago, there was this little skull found in South Africa. And this little skull was clearly a human relative, and it doesn't have a big brain. It has a brain that's pretty much the size of an ape. It didn't look particularly human-like, but it has a sort of a short face like we do. And importantly, it looked like the head sat up on top of the spine, so it was an upright biped. And this little skull really upended our ideas of how we evolved. We know that big brains and tools and bipedal locomotion didn't evolve at the same time. Things happened differently. And the, the anatomist that found this, Raymond Dart, named this creature Australopithecus, which means southern ape, um, because it was found in South Africa. And Australopithecus is, I'll talk a lot about it tonight, you'll hear more about it, but we now just not just have one of these, these skulls, but there have been many teams over these last 98 years finding more and more fossils. This happened to me, um, some of us out in Eastern Africa looking for fossils. And we now have hundreds or even thousands of fossils attributed to our fossil ancestors. And these have given us a great idea about this trajectory of changes that led us to where we are today. But equally important to finding fossils is interpreting them. What do we do when we get these fossils? How do we make sense of them? How do we unlock their secrets and tell what it is that they actually reveal about human evolution? And this is where the work of the Leakey Foundation is so important. 
To understand what these fossils are telling us, we need to figure out the anatomy of what they're, what they're telling us, what their functional signals might be, and we need to put this together with information about behavior of our living relatives and genetics and evidence of our own behavior and so forth to put together a picture of our evolutionary past. And that's why the work of the foundation is so important because it funds all of these aspects of the endeavors that led, led us to where we are in terms of our knowledge now. Now, Australopithecus isn't just a skull. There's a collection of up to eight or nine species, depending on which one of you, which one of us you ask on any particular day. But there are multiple different species. But all of them, when you look at this Australopithecus here in the middle, compared to a chimpanzee and a human, you look and you see there's no big brain like you see on the human here. But you also don't have the big projecting canines like you see in an ape. But what's really distinctive about all of these species is they have these huge faces and teeth and jaws and this really intensive adaptation for eating not just fruits like the chimpanzee, but whatever they ran across on the environment. And so this sort of intensive chewing adaptation, thank you, is really what marks this species. But what we, it doesn't look particularly human-like. But what's really distinctive about Australopithecus is the way that they moved around the world. And this is really what is most notable about telling us that these are, in fact, our fossil relatives. From the neck down, we stand up and walk around on two feet in a way that no other species on Earth has ever done. And we can see Lucy over here on the right. She's sort of the poster child for human evolution. Her skeleton, in all intents and purposes, is very much like our own or some of our more recent fossil relatives, like the members of the genus Homo. So it's walking upright on two feet that's really distinctive about even Australopithecus. And just in case you think there aren't many fossils, these are now some of the associated skeletons that we have, along with many, 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 many other isolated bones and teeth from which we can extract information about our past. So Australopithecus being bipedal, I won't sweat too many of the details here, is seen in, for example, the knee. This is a thigh bone. We are not kneed, so when we stand on one foot, our, feet, our center of gravity is right over our foot, and we can walk without falling over. We have a pelvis that's rearranged, and we see in Australopithecus, to enable the muscles to balance us from side to side when we walk around on one foot at a time. We have spines of Australopithecus, vertebral columns, that share the segmentation pattern, the curvatures that allow us to stand fully upright and would have allowed Australopithecus to do the same. We have evidence from the foot. Humans are the only primates that lack a grasping big toe, and we have fossils that show us this. We have stiff feet with arches in them that allow us to walk very effectively, and Australopithecus had this too. And if you don't believe the bones, there are even footprints that are over three and a half million years old that show this distinctive human pattern. These and more lines of evidence tell us that really Australopithecus is definitely much more like us than it was like a living ape and definitely our fossil relative and would have stood and had a body shape pretty much like us. A few little details, a little longer arms, a little more curved fingers, maybe a little different shoulders and so forth, but really fundamentally human-like and being bipedal. And so a lot of us worry about bipedality and how important this is for the origins of our branch of the family tree, the Australopithecus and human clade, as we would call it. And so the very, very first Australopithecus we have is called Anamensis. It was found by Mivliki and her team in the 90s. And Anam is the Turkana people's word for lake. It's found near Lake Turkana. And Anamensis is about 4.2 million years old. 
And if you look at this diagram here, you see there's an explosion of species of hominids after this time. But Anamensis is the beginning of this branch of the family tree. Now, there are some older fossil relatives of Australopithecus and us. They're a little less complete. I'm not going to talk about them too much today. But the beginning of Australopithecus starts 4.2 million years ago. So the question is, was Australopithecus bipedal? If you look at a human, like this is Eliab Kachogi, the marathon runner, you can see that he, like the Australopithecus here, look like they have a leg, a tibia, from the knee to the ankle that's straight up and down because our knee's right over our feet. The chimpanzee over here has an angle to its tibia because that's associated with sort of this bow-legged appearance, lets them turn their feet in and climb on branches and so forth. And I promise not too many numbers tonight, but you can measure this very simply, and you can see that Anamensis and all those other Australopithecus, all those other fossil hominids there look just like humans, tibia straight up and down. So we know that 4.2 million years ago, our ancestors or our relatives were already bipedal. Now, if you pick up, you take an anthropology class and you pick up a textbook, you'll read that the strange, heavy chewing adaptation of Australopithecus is something that occurred that allowed them to move into open areas. Now, the time period right before this, sort of five, eight million years ago, the Earth was experiencing climate change. There was a cooling and drying, forests were shrinking, particularly in eastern Africa where these animals lived. And they're finding themselves on the open country. And so the story goes, in order to find this new sorts of diet, sources of food and so forth, they were changing their diet. And this led them to move further and further into the open country and eventually become bipedal. So if Anamensis was bipedal, what about its dietary adaptations? What was it eating? Well, we know that Canopoi, that where the first Anamensis was found, is the beginning of a lineage that evolves into what we call afarensis, which is Lucy's species, or it's all one species, depending on who you ask or what review articles you read, Zerai. Um, <laughs> that's fine. That's all good. But what you can see is the jaws of anamensis and afarensis here are different. And you see that the afarensis jaw is more V-shaped, the front is pulled together, the chin is a little bit steeper. And we think that this is a change of shape that allowed afarensis, the later populations, to eat to be better and better at chewing harder foods. So there seems to be bipedality being established by 4.2, but still this dietary evolution going on. Now, are we right? Well, here's where analysis comes in, and here's where new ways to analyze fossils are really important. Zarai and I and some of our colleagues are actually capitalizing on engineering approaches where you can use computer modeling to load different jaws and subject them to different forces and see how they respond to try to test this hypothesis. Work is still in progress, but we're hopeful. Um, Matt Skinner and his colleagues have been able to use high-resolution micro-CT scanning to look inside teeth and look at the thickness of the enamel cap on the teeth. The thicker the enamel cap is, the longer it takes to wear down so you can eat tougher things. And if you look in the red circle there, you see that anamensis actually is thinner enamel than later hominids. So that seems to indicate that there was changes in dietary behavior as well. Um, Lots of clever chemists can look at the isotopes of carbon that are left in the teeth when the teeth are growing. These are products of plant photosynthesis, and as you eat plants, you incorporate this carbon into yourself, and it shows up in the teeth. And you can see that anamensis is down at the bottom of this graph. The details aren't too important. Um, and so that would have been specialized more in just plant-based resources, whereas you move up through time to the right here, and you see a much greater breadth of plant-based and 
or tree-based and grass-based types of plants they would have been eating. So a broadening of the kinds of things they were choosing. So there really does seem to be dietary evolution going on in this first million years. And so it might be that bipedality, in fact, enabled this change in dietary evolution that happens later on, but the bipedality was pretty well established first. So to me, this is a long-winded way of saying it's the transition to the strange form of locomotion that really defines the beginning of this lineage. And if we want to understand how this began, that's where we should start looking. So if we try to figure out where we came from, where did bipedality come from, and all we have is the living world, we can look at all the hominoids, which is our word for this kind of animal, living in the world today, and they're all basically pretty similar sorts of animals except for one. I'll let you figure out which one I'm talking about. And so these are all animals that tend to spend their time up in the trees. They tend to use all four hands, if you will, hands and feet to move about. They hold their bodies upright. They have big, long, powerful arms and big, long fingers and a bunch of other adaptations, short legs and short little bodies that enable them to move effectively around through the trees. And so you can see how they do this here. And so it seems natural to assume that our ancestor, that we should, the last common ancestor we shared with the chimpanzee, might have been pretty similar to some of the great apes we see living today. And this is really significant when we think about locomotion, because when these animals come down to the ground, especially the great apes, they're so big and they have such big, heavy upper bodies and stiff backs and so forth, that they use a peculiar form of walking on their knuckles when they're on the ground. And chimps and gorillas spend a lot of time on the ground moving knuckle walking. So this would give us one idea of maybe what our ancestry might have been like if we only looked at living animals. But we have a fossil record. And so while it's sort of most parsimonious or simplest to come to that conclusion looking at modern things, it's maybe not the case. We know that back maybe 20, 25 million years ago when the earliest apes first appeared, they walked on all fours on top of the branches. And we have dozens and dozens of species of apes after this time in the fossil record. What we have today is only a small helping of what we had in the past. And I won't go through all these, thank goodness for all of you. But the bottom line here, the important story is none of them are as specialized as their living relatives in terms of how they would have moved about the world, which is one of the defining features of our early ancestors. So I'm going to talk a little bit about one of them, an animal called Rudipithecus. And if any of you were at the Cal Academy the other day, you've heard some of this, so you can check your phones or your text for a few minutes here. Um, Rudipithecus is an ape that's probably closely related to the African ape and human clade or group. It lived in Hungary about 10 million years ago, hence the name Rudipithecus. And I'm excited about because it has a part of a pelvis. And the pelvis is really important because it's part of the whole torso. And it also forms part of the hip joint and ankles, anchors the muscles of the lower limb for moving around. So it's a lot of information packed into one bone. But when you look at this fossil, unfortunately, the fossils don't come usually in nice, neat, complete pieces. They have bits and pieces broken off. And this is missing most of the top part and most of the middle part and some of the bottom part. So we have to figure out, again, how do we pull the information out from this animal that might tell us what it would have been doing as it moved around? And from that, we turn to laser scanning technology where you can get good surface 3D models. 
And then we can come up with different ways of measuring morphology that don't rely on landmarks and calipers and traditional measurements that those old timers like me are used to. And we're able to put all this together and see what Rudopithecus looked like. I'm not going to go through all of it. I'll just go through some of the highlights because it makes a point that I'll be getting to as we go. So when we look at the monkey walking above branches, and we have the siamang here, this ape, you see the monkey's holding its body horizontally. Its limbs are sort of tucked in as it moves around, whereas the siamang has to reach all these different directions and all this different support. So it holds its body upright and has really mobile limbs. We can tell that Rudopithecus would also have had upright body posture because we could look at the hip joint socket called the acetabulum, and we could see it's expanded or bigger at the top, just like an ape and not like this monkey. My former student, Ashley Hammond, funded by the Leakey Foundation, was able to, be, to find a very clever way to digitally articulate and put together the thigh bone of the femur and the pelvis and see what the range of motion would have been like at the hip joint and determine that Rudopithecus would again have been much more like the ape than it would like the monkey. So here's a flexible joint, upright animal living in the trees, perhaps something like this reconstruction. And that's pretty cool. This says, gee, maybe this ape by 10 million years ago is starting to behave more like a modern one. But again, the pelvis is not just hip joint. It's also part of the whole torso. And this actually varies a lot in primates. Up until a few years ago, um, this was the, all the information we have of how animals are put together because bones either aren't visible inside an animal or in a, in a collection. They're just a bunch of bones in the bottom of a drawer. And so this idea here was put together in really the 30s and 40s, and that's the information we have. So we use CT scans to take cadavers of animals and look at all their bones put together. And it turns out that if you have a good eye and you have any drawing skills, you could do a pretty good job of figuring what animals look like. But we were able to actually expand our knowledge to a lot of other different kinds of animals. And this is just but a few examples. And it enables us to see how this pelvis would have, would have contributed to the whole body shape. So here's our monkeys again, walking up on all fours, moving around very differently from our apes, some of which you've seen before, adding the siamang here. And so the way they move around is actually related to how the body is put together. So, we'll move it. There we go. And so if you look again at the old Adolf Schultz, old drawings here, you can see monkeys have a very long, thin, flexible torso that allows them to move when they're running and leaping and walking through the trees. Whereas the ape has a, a very long pelvis, a very short lower back, a very stiff spine. And that provides a really stiff anchor for all the muscles of the upper limb that are moving them around the trees. So the short, wide body shape, which you can see in the photos, you maybe didn't need the bones, I don't know but enables these to move around. So how does the Rudopithecus pelvis tell us what kind of body shape Rudopithecus might have had? Well, here's where things get a little bit nerdier here. So over on your right, there's a monkey with that long, that long vertebral column, that short, narrow pelvis, contrasted with great apes over here um, on your right. So when we look at the Rudopithecus pelvis here, it's a little bit broken, it's true, but it actually looks intermediate. So one of the questions is, well, if it kind of looks monkey and kind of looks like an ape, does that mean it's moving kind of like a monkey and kind of like an ape? Well, no, because as you can see here, the pelvis in parts preserved is almost a dead ringer for a siamang, these smaller apes that move um, sort of hand over hand through the trees. So if Rudopithecus doesn't really look like a great ape, did it really behave like a great ape? Well, that's another way some of the new ways we have to look at fossils have come into play. 
here's a here's a Siamang here doing its great hand over hand locomotion. So is that what it's doing? Well, we use these three t these CT scans. My former postdoc Emily Middleton, who's now a assistant professor at University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, we put this together and we realized that as you go from a cocker spaniel sized gibbon up to a three hundred pound grade ape. The mechanical requirements of supporting your weight over multiple small branches in the trees by multiple limbs and reaching around become exponentially greater as you get larger. And your body shape has to change exponentially as well to satisfy those mechanical demands so that you can effectively move around in the trees. And if we look at the body size of Rudapithecus and many of the other apes that also lived in the past, it's about just a little bit bigger than a siamang here. So what this tells us is Rudapithecus was an animal that could have moved around the trees, maybe like a great ape. It just didn't have to be anatomically as specialized just because it wasn't so big. So what does this have to do with anything? When we come back to our, our family tree here, we have our original apes walking on all fours. Even up through 12 or 15 million years ago, all the apes seem to be walking on all fours. And what this means is that Gibbons and Siamangs may have evolved this below-branch specialization independently of the great apes. And orangutans probably evolved this independently of the African apes and of the gibbons as well. And that raises a question, well, what about gorillas and the chimpanzee group? We don't really know. But it raises the question, once we get to around 10 million years ago, these apes are living in Europe and Asia, all over the place. There are many species besides Ruda. I just told you about the one. And all of these are starting to behave in a much more modern ape-like way, as far as we can tell, but they weren't as anatomically specialized. So that means that perhaps the last common ancestor of great apes and humans might not have been as anatomically specialized in some ways as we see in great apes. So when we do our traditional, this is the old time life drawing that our Leaky Foundation logo was based on, um, when we assume that we evolved from an animal that's very much like a chimpanzee. The big question of human origins has always been, why did we stand up from all fours? And our, I imagine our hypotheses about why this would have happened to see over tall grass or to carry things or whatever it happens to be was based on the assumption that we stood up from all fours. But if we look back at these Miocene fossil apes like Rudapithecus, and we remember that chimpanzees and bonobos have been evolving for just as long as we have, we might get a different idea or a hypothesis of what might have gone on. As chimpanzees and gorillas got larger and larger, they would have had to become more anatomically specialized, and it would have made to be able to still eat the fruits that they generally rely on. Whereas our ancestors, perhaps, as those, those environments were opening up, as they had to move from trees to trees initially, might have moved just like they did in the trees, upright on two feet, which they would have been able to do more easily with a longer, more flexible back and torso. So maybe the question I think that we should be asking is not, why did we stand up from all fours, but why did we never drop down all fours to begin with? This may be good. It may not be right. We'll see what happens with science moving forward. Um, and the project that I'm going to actually end this talk talking about, I think, is going to help us get at this question. But right now, I'm going to have a little bit of a pivot. I told you at the beginning of the talk that it's the fossils that are the key to unlocking 
all of these all of these changes that happen through time. And so one of the things I do is I co-lead a field project to find more fossils in Kenya called the West Turkana Paleo Project. It's run through the National Museums of Kenya. And my co-leaders are Dr. Frederick Chalomanthi, who many of you know, he was a, um, a, it's been a long time affiliate of the foundation and received a lot of support. And he's here too. And our colleague, Mike Pofkin of University of Arkansas and a phenomenal team um, and crew that we've been working with for many years to look at sites in Eastern Africa. And we're gonna have a zoom in here. And as we zoom in, you can see the Rift Valley extending through Ethiopia, Kenya, and Tanzania. And right in the center there is Lake Turkana, which many of you have heard about. And you can see the sort of lightish colored areas on the map here are mostly fossiliferous exposures. So the east side of the lake is where the Leakey family has found many, many fossils. We're working on the west side of the lake, all up and down the lake. We have a number of different projects, including Canopoy and other things that we've worked on over the years. But I want to give you a story of one particular fossil find and how it's going to lead me to another big question, I think, in terms of human evolution. So the site I'm going to talk about is called Caitio, and this should zoom, which is not zooming. It's, there we go. Well, that was Neriacotomy, that little spit here, um, which is where the Turkana boy was found. And this gives you a little bit of an idea where we are in, in Kenya and what the area looks like. It's pretty far out in the desert. Um, the site of Kaitio is about 1.4 million years old, and the Leakey Foundation contributed to this research as well. I just want to note that. And at this site, it's a very small site. You've never heard of it before. But we found a metacarpal. These are the bones in the palm of your hand. This is the third metacarpal. It's right in the center of your hand. And you think, well, that's not very exciting, maybe. But what's really significant about this, which is now behind the Leakey Foundation, so you can't tell, it's okay, I've got another slide coming up, um, is that at the bottom of it, there's this little pointy bit called a styloid process. And I think if there's a circle here, and if we move on, the styloid process is not found in apes, it is not found in Australopithecus, but it is found in Neanderthals and humans. This is a human-like hand. And you're all thinking, oh, come on, Ward. It's a little tiny thing at the bottom of a little tiny bone. What can it possibly mean? Well, it turns out to be really significant because hands, of course, are critically important for making and using tools. And beginning of tool use and making tools is the foundation for all of the technology that's allowing me to stand up and give you this talk today and for you to sit here and listen. So we think a lot about the evolution of the human hand. And to me, after being bipedal, that's the next big anatomical question that fascinates me about human evolution. So prior to the discovery of this, we'd seen the styloid process, which you think is a part of a specialized wrist in humans. And we thought it was maybe 800,000 years ago or so, and some associated with much more sophisticated homo um, species. But finding this pulls our understanding of the origin of the human hand back over 600,000 years earlier than previously thought. And this is a little bit of a speculation, but it's not too far after in the fossil record, we start seeing Ashleyan tools, which are sort of fancy regular tools compared to the tooled industries that had come before it. So perhaps this hand is associated with the um, increasing complexity of stone tool use, which to me also is a indicator of using lots of different objects to make your way through the world. But is this true? So the theory goes like this, and this is why the styloid process may be important. This is a picture here of, you can see over on the right here, of the second 
and first and second metacarpals of your thumb and first finger and of a human and the little carpal bones that, that support all of those underneath in a human and in a chimpanzee. And all the little joints and the bones inside the wrist that support these are different between these two. You can see the human has a much relatively larger thumb and shorter second metacarpal, with shorter palms of our hands than compared to the chimpanzee. And the hypothesis is that the orientation of the joints in the hand reflects the directions of load that are passing across the joints. Because a joint has to be able to resist the forces, so it needs to be normal or perpendicular to the loads. And the idea is if you have a big thumb and you're holding things and really grasping and using tools, a lot of the muscle forces will be propagated sort of transversely across the wrist. And so that the human wrist will be changed in terms of the shapes of the bones and the orientations in response to these forces compared with an ape. And the, so using tools, you're going to use this. And that third metacarpal styloid process is thought to sort of slot into the wrist and be part of this reorganization of the whole wrist. So it in itself is maybe not the important bit, but it's a part of an or reorganized wrist. And this is a cool idea, I think. This is based on the work of my colleague Matt Tosheri and his advisor Mary Marsky. And it's been great, but we can't see muscles in the fossil record. We don't know if any of this is necessarily true, and it's been really challenging to get at this kind of question. People have done clever things. Aaron Marie Williams Hatala and colleagues have looked at, done forced transducers to look at the forces of the human hand when people are doing different things with tools. But we can't do that in fossils. Um, people from Tracy Kibble and Matt, and Matt Skinner's lab have been looking at the internal structure of bone to try to reconstruct the sort of forces they would have been able to use. But without the muscles, it's really hard to interpret those data. This is another example of looking at distribution of bones and hands to try to, to infer what loads would have been passing through the hand. But none of these are direct. And this is something that I've been thinking about for a long time because of that little fossil. And so at the University of Missouri, I have teamed up with two of my colleagues, Dr. Casey Holliday and Dr. Kevin Middleton, and we were awarded a Leakey Foundation grant to actually look at muscles in the hand and see how they relate to all these changes in the bones. Um, and so what we've done, I've done is taken advantage of something I've been watching their research for a while. They work on crocodile feeding and dinosaurs and things with this. But you can take a medical CT. So if you go to the hospital and you get a CT scan, say of, this would be of your hand here, you can see the bones pretty nicely, but it's all pretty fuzzy. But there are now ways where you can soak cadaveric materials in iodine, which binds to the glycogen of the muscles, and it appears on, on x-ray, on CT scans, which are basically just spinning x-rays. And with a high enough, high-resolution scan, you can actually see the tendons and the muscles and the nerves and the vessels inside the hand. And so here's, here, I'll show you what it looks like in a moment, but I want to acknowledge, too, our wonderful students, my current students, Nadine Steer and Mara Fields, who are working on this project, and Eden Makareth, who's gone on to become a physician, um, but helped us with the early phases of this research. So we're taking this technology and seeing if we can test some of these hypotheses. So we do, we do this, this is a chimpanzee in a human hand. These are not the results of our funding. It turns out it's taking a year or so to actually get the staining in progress. We're actually going to finally stain our study specimens in a couple of weeks. But these are our pilot data. So this, we went down to the University of Texas High Resolution Computed Tomography Facility, who are experts at this, and we, we 
scanned all these after they've been sewn in iodine, and you can even see all the detail inside the tissues of these two specimens. And from this, we can get a lot of really great information. So this is a picture of a human hand that one of our students, Spiro Sullivan, made a few years ago. On the right, you can see the CT, actual CT images, these stained specimens. We can then use digital technology to segment out and see all of the blobs of muscles and tendons and things running through the hands. We can actually see in 3D what's going on. And with high enough resolution, we can use machine learning algorithms in the software to identify each different fascicle within the muscles. So these are the actual fascicles inside each of the muscles. The colors in this particular case reflect the orientation of those fascicles. And this is actually pretty amazing because we can see these all the muscles together. Before we had this, you can do dissection and you can pull out one muscle and you can weigh it and measure it and do sorts of things and then you can go on to the next one and it's destructive. The, that's, its specimen is gone after this. These we can see simultaneously. We can see all kinds of things together at the same time. It's non-destructive. And importantly, we can use this to stay some pretty whiffy things about biomechanics. And don't go to sleep just yet, but I'm going to go show you some of the kinds of things we can see. So here's our human and our chimp pilot study hands. And here we've just highlighted the muscles, not the tendons or anything else, so you can see, of the thumb muscles, which we call thenar, and the muscles of the little finger, which we call hypothenar. And I think any of you, even if you're not anatomist, can immediately see there's differences. And those differences are in three dimensions. Again, the colors indicate dark blue is sort of up and down, and the other colors are more side-to-side -side orientation. And you can see that the muscles inside these hands are really very different. And you can see them all 3D at the same time. And so what's really cool about this is you can not just make really cool-looking slides. I think this is a cool-looking slide. You can actually do science with them. So one of the things we can do, everybody knows when you go to the gym and you have people with really big muscles, they're much stronger. The more muscle fascicles you have op operating together, the stronger you're going to be. And we can measure the muscle fascicles, again, using these machine learning algorithms and tell how strong they are. And details are not super important here. But just for an example, um, we can also look at the orientation, which direction the muscles are pulling, which is going to tell you how they're going to pull the bones. And we can look at where they are relative to the joints. If you're further away from the joints, you have more leverage. That's when you're in the teeter-totter. The big kid has to move in closer to the middle, and the little kid has to sit out in the end. The same thing works for muscles. So, for example, here's opponent's pollicis, the one that pulls your thumb across your palm. And we can plot the orientation of all this in 3D space. So you can see the human is much, much stronger. And you can see that by just looking at the pictures. The chimps is much, much smaller. And you can see the orientation is maybe too different, but it's much stronger. To take another muscle here, this one happens to be abductor pollicis brevis. We get to use lots of good words. And this one... The chimpanzee is a little bit stronger than the human, but when you look at the picture and the graph here, you can see that the human muscle is more transverse and it's situated further away from the joint at the base of the thumb. So it's actually going to be capable of producing more force. So we can measure not just how strong a muscle is, but all of the mechanics that get what we call moments um, of how much these things would have worked. Even when we look at the little finger here, there's two muscles here. They're about the same strength in the chimp and the human, but the human you can see is much more transversely oriented. And humans actually, you can actually move 
the edge of your palm by your little finger a little bit. And that's really important for certain grips of your hand, which you would use for using and making tools, which we do all the time. I'm using it to hold on to these objects. And so when we put all this together, when we get all the information for the forearm muscles, because a lot of your hands move basically like guy wires of, from muscles that are up in your um, forearms, we're going to be able to actually quantify the biomechanics of the hand and test the hypotheses about reorientation of the wrist and the evolution of the human hand. So when we do that, we can put it together with the proportions of the hand, with the joint orientations, and we can come back to the fossil record and look at the evolution of the modern of the human hand. We can see what it means, if the styloid process story even makes any sense, and exactly how maybe the hand has evolved. So we can use those muscle forces to then go back and give us a much more informed understanding of the bones. And I bet you thought I forgot about bipedality. I didn't. We can also go back even further in time and look at the fossil records of not just hominids, but apes as well. And this is but a tiny smattering of what we have in the fossil record. It turns out that there are lots and lots of hand bones in the, in the Miocene fossil record that'll tell us something about maybe the locomotion of some of those fossil apes. And we can also use this for feet. And feet and hands have been really hard to understand because you have more than 25 bones, you've got a more than a couple of dozen muscles that are operating your hands and your feet, and apes do too, and they've been really difficult to study. So we're hoping that we can use this technology to not just get information about the hands and tool use, but also to go back further in time and see how were these fossil apes using their hands and feet as they moved around the trees. So if we come back to our diagram here, if all of these apes evolved these sort of superficially similar ways of making their way around the world, independently, we might imagine that their differences are really important. And we know they're different. I'm oversimplifying it. <laughs> they're all similar. Everybody in the audience is going, come on. Um, but when you look, for example, even at the outsides of the pairs of hands and feet of each of these animals, they're really quite different. And when we see a lot of similarity, then we can imagine if two animals are similar, that they may have inherited that similarity from a common ancestor. If they're very different, it might indicate that they independently evolved certain things. So given the abundance of foot bones in particular in the fossil record, as well as hand bones, um, both from the fossil apes and hominids, we should be able to use this technology to look at, we're going to start with African apes and humans, to see what the similarities and differences are, and to see if they can give us any insight on what that last common ancestor of apes and humans was doing, and give us much better insight into the things that make these hominids, um, made these hominids lives, and led to us as a species. So we come back here and you can even see some of these fossil hominins here are already using tools. So really hoping that by applying these new ways of studying the modern world and new links to what we can see of the fossils, we can tease even more information out from these fossils, from these ancestors, from these fossil relatives to say, did we evolve from an animal that might have been like a chimp or gorilla? What was that last common ancestor like? Which to me is the fundamental question about the origins of our lineage. And also then take that up in the human evolution to look at that evolution of the hand. 
How did this progress? Was it related to anything we see in the archaeological record? What can we then tell about our development as a lineage and the diversity um, of the of humans and apes and all our fossil relatives that we had in the past? So I'm really excited to get going on this project. And I just do want to reiterate again that the foresight of the Leakey Foundation and the willingness to try out new technologies and look at new ways of things has proved incredibly fruitful over the last more than 50 years. And I'm sure it's going to continue to do this again. And really, the Leakey Foundation underlies pretty much everything I've alluded to or mentioned all the way through here because it's been underlying all of our ability to do our research. So what's going to happen in the future? I'm not quite sure. I'm pretty excited about this project. I think it's going to open up all kinds of incredible new doors. I think it's going to address some of our key questions in human evolution. And I can't wait to get going. And I thought of listing everyone I want to acknowledge on one slide, but it would be really tiny font. I couldn't have done any of this without certainly the Leakey Foundation and other funding agencies, museums, curators, collaborators, students, everybody. This made it all possible. So I just want to thank all of you for joining me this evening. I hope we can have a lively discussion afterwards. I want to thank all of you that are listening in from afar. And I want to thank especially the foundation for the incredible honor of being named the Gordon P. Getty Laureate for this year. Thank you all so much. Yes. And because I'm up here and you all are out there, I get to ask the first question. And I'm just brimming over with so many questions. So thank you so much. That was fascinating. Um, I, it's a little bit mind-blowing to me when you present this information about how things have evolved from a state of a generalist to a specialist. And I wonder, you did mention that part of the drive to become specialized is increasing body size and I wonder what you think would have you know been the driving force of increasing body size oh I'm sorry that's my first question (laughs) (laughs) um it's actually um in in great apes okay right in in hominids didn't really become larger until much later but that's a slightly different story great apes are probably and we're not exactly sure but probably larger than the last common ancestor just if you add up all the fossil apes none of them well most of them are not quite as large as we see in modern chimpanzees or gorillas so we're inferring that the ancestor would have probably been smaller and in many lineages of animals over time you see increases in body size over time and a lot of different ideas about that may have happened in terms of reproduction and all kinds of other things i don't know that we have a really good idea or i don't have a really good idea of exactly why that would have happened but it seems to have happened so we know that it probably did I see um i will just say that a lot of times if somebody wrote this on a card i'm sorry if i'm present pre um um, getting ahead of you here, but a lot of people say, well, when you go out to find fossils, what hominid, what fossil do you really want to find? What kind of hominid do you want to find? And I say, I want to find a fossil chimpanzee because that's what we really need for the answers to answer questions about did they get large? And then we can start answering the questions about why, which are right. the hard questions, right. but the fun ones. So Rudopithecus was smaller than ancient humans or about the same size? It was probably a little bit smaller. Um, Australopithecus the Lucy that everybody knows about, and some they're about the smallest. They're maybe sort of three and a half, four feet tall. The males maybe a little five. Back then, males were much larger than females in general. Right. So probably smaller in body size. And then obviously we became much larger over time 
probably with the origins of the genus Homo or, or sometime after the origins of the genus Homo. Cool. Um, I, I, I will be getting some questions up, but since they haven't come yet, I've got a couple other. <laughs> sure, you bet. <laughs> I, I think it's fascinating that you can dissect the meeting of the bones in the hands and feet. And are you uh, looking for a similar signature in specialization versus generalization as you see in the arrangement of, um, of, the, of the torso? And, and the I think so. It's actually um, amazing how much we don't know right. about how, how the hand, hand and foot function. There are people that have studied actually great apes a reasonable amount, right. and they've been able to weigh muscles and measure muscles, but it's hard to put electrodes in animals' hands and feet and have them behave naturally. You can't really do the kinds of things that you would want to have the information of. So we're hoping that, that this will show us... Um, the muscles of the hands and the feet, how are they used differently? Right. It's also very difficult to study hands in living private, or has been especially until recently, because hands and feet are small, and looking at how an animal's gripping something when you're watching them far away is very hard to see. Even in a captive setting, it's been challenging to study. Mm -hmm. um, back on the new technology um, aspect of things, there are ways you can actually do um, watch things move in 3D with camera systems now from a distance that are starting to be used, sure. um, which is really exciting. There are force and pressure plate systems you can use and have animals move around and see how much force they're producing. But it still doesn't tell you what about the inside of the hand is doing the work mm -hmm. and how that's related to the bone orientation. We have this ideas that it should work, but we don't really know. And we really don't understand the musculature of feet and how they put together. There are also cool ways of doing what's called musculoskeletal modeling, in which you can actually build computer models and simulations of animals moving in different ways. Cool. Um, and, or, those are fantastic, but they depend on the inputs you put into them. You need accurate bony geometry. That's pretty easy with CT scans and so forth. Um, but the muscles have really been a challenge, and we haven't had a way to do it before these kinds of technologies came along. And so we're hoping that the information that we get can be fed into modeling as we move forward in order to actually see what were the forces, how were they used to put to get together with the behavior. This is very long-winded, sorry. That's but then wonderful. that should give us good hypotheses to go back to behavioral studies or captive in the wild and see if what we're seeing in the anatomy matches the behaviors and how to put all that pieces together. So this is really... Uh, uh, work that's in its infancy in terms of what we can do, but I think it has tremendous potential. It's going to reveal so much. I, I hope so. I, I think about <laughs> my mom, who's a quilter, and she does these amazing stitches, and then I liken it to a chimp nitpicking. And, you know, there's a lot of very fine motor activities that I think will be illuminated by this. And I study. hope so. And in primate evolution, the idea is if you're in a tree it's real important that you don't fall out of the tree. <laughs> That's pretty obvious. And so the, the having a feet, feet that can grasp and hold on tightly that frees up the hands to be able to do all those kinds of things, open fruits, groom each other, all those other things that are even getting it maybe is probably a little bit of a stretch. Even look at aspects of social behavior and so forth. In primate evolution earlier on, the interplay between the hands and feet is something we also don't really have a very good idea of. And we're hoping that this project will move us in that direction. Wonderful. Speaking of feet, 
What did Australopithecus's feet look like compared to Homo erectus and Homo neanderthal? Absolutely. Very, very similar in the important ways. So um, the toes would have been in line with the rest of the digits. There would have been an arch in the foot. We can actually see arches in the footprints and in the bones. So it would have been very similar. Australopithecus probably had a little bit longer toes than we do, it seems to be from the fossils. And some scholars have argued that the big toe is a little bit more divergent from the rest of the digits. But nothing like we see in any other primate that's pretty much ever lived that we know of. And to me, the most compelling argument for how important being good walking on the ground is that we gave up have a grasping big foot, a big toe, to move around in the trees. We can get in trees. Australopithecus almost certainly climbed in trees, and they were probably better at than we are. They were stronger. They had a few other sort of minor differences that would enable to be a little bit better. But if you're, for example, a, a female that's holding a baby that doesn't have grasping big toes to hold onto your fur, and you only have one grasping appendage left, it's really hard to move well, efficiently, quickly in the trees, anything like a great ape does. We gave that up to take re purpose all of those muscles and soft tissues on the bottom of the foot to be efficient and effective walking on the ground. So it must have been really important to do that well for selection, to give all of that up. And it does seem that maybe early hominids did go into trees now and then, and they would have been better, like I say. But fundamentally, the thing that selection was acting on so strongly was walking well on the ground on two feet. And that's why I think it's so important. So to me, the feet are the most telling aspect of all of the skeleton in terms of natural selection and what selection was favoring. Yeah. And just to, so Homo erectus and Neanderthals, there was a little bit of change, but it was really relatively minor after right. that point. Right. Um, I, before I go on to some of these questions, it, it, are there other signals in the fossil record, other forms of evidence that um, give you more information about the actual environment that these human evolutionary features evolved in? So other plants or animals that show this transition from forest to savanna, for example. Absolutely. In fact, when we're in the field and when we're finding fossils and if you dip your toe into the scientific literature on human evolution, a lot of, most in some ways, of what we're talking about is the other animals in the environments. Hominids are maybe 1% of the animals out there that we find, even of the large vertebrates that we can actually see in the fossil record. And there's a lot of interest, of course, in how humans are related to the environment. What about our evolution may have been driven by or um, influenced by environmental change and so forth. And there are a lot of papers. There was one that just came out recently about some fossil apes and the importance of grasslands and adaptation and so forth. Um, and it seems that with Australopiths, they lived in some variable environments. They're pretty flexible, but they weren't in deep forests. Right. They were in sort of semi-open woodlands, somewhat variable, some a little wetter, some a little bit drier. But uh, some of the big questions with the variation among Australopithecus species and what may have happened later may have to do with environmental differences. But for example, in that million years of Australopithecus evolution, there doesn't seem to be any dramatic environmental change driving the morphological changes we see. Mm. Um, and But that's... Um, there are lots of, again, new ways to look at environments, look at um, 
isotopic signatures and soils and in animals and composition of what kinds of animals are there? Do you find a bunch of zebras and ostriches or do you find monkeys and you know, snakes and things that would be a forested environment. Right. So we use a lot of that kind of information to try to piece yeah. it together. But we um, we sort of know globally from people studying other aspects, rather, not hominid fossils, but we know that there's environmental change happening, right, sort of before we start to see Australopiths all over the world. We don't have a very good fossil record of hominids at that time, particularly in Africa where we see Australopiths just the chances of basically geologic happenstance for the most part. Right. So tying that origin tightly to environments, we need more hominids to do that and, and more sites, I guess, and fossil. But there's a lot of effort to do that. But a lot of the changes I'm talking about in terms of Australopiths, Australopiths to humans, doesn't seem to be super strongly driven by environmental changes, though that was probably different earlier in time with the origin of this lineage. Right. So climate change back then was probably happening more slowly than it is today. <laughs> so would you say that the, um, the, the, the ancestral sort of locom locomotor habits of chimps, bonobos, and gorillas were um, more flexible, um, the term homoplastic, I'm not exactly sure what that means, or that the, lo uh, the last common ancestor of that group was, was firmly committed to knuckle walking? Ah, that's a that's a question of much debate over beers <laughs> or, or lunches um, among scientists. So homoplastic, first of all, means that um, when you have two animals that evolve a similar thing differently, we call that homoplasy. So it's like parallel or convergent evolution. So you may have two animals that seem similar, but they got that way coming from a different starting point. Um, I think that knuckle walking, and I differ, there are many colleagues that are different, have different opinions than I do about this one. I think the balance of evidence suggests that we would not have evolved from a knuckle walker right. because I think that knuckle walking is associated with this tree climbing, large bodied, stiff back. I spent a lot of time studying backs and torsos. I think that's influences knuckle walking, it makes it much more difficult. And yes, there are captive gorillas that stand and walk on two feet, but and, and, and certainly great apes can stand up and walk on two feet, but they don't tend to as often. And so I think that if the ancestor was smaller and more sort of flexibly built, if you will, to sort of oversimplify things a little bit, I think it's less likely that our, we would have evolved from a knuckle walker. But that's a hypothesis. Other thing with science changes. We look for more evidence. We keep trying to look at this. I'm hoping that something about the hands and foot projects will shed some light on that situation. Knuckle walking, unfortunately, doesn't really have a signature in the bones. People have been trying and trying to pull it out. In fact, Zarai has a student who's trying to get at some of these questions too in really new and interesting ways. Um, also funded by the Leakey Foundation, I might add. So I think there's going to be, with new ways to look at the fossils that we do have and maybe get some clues in hands and feet, we can get at that. And if I end up being wrong, I end up being wrong. And that's how science goes. I think I'm not, but maybe I am. Uh, so maybe this is a little bit related to the convergent evolution of, of hand morphologies, but uh, an audience member observed that chimpanzee hands and human hands seem more different than human hands and gorilla hands. Yes, that's absolutely true. Chimpanzees have 
much longer sort of palms of their hands, if you will, and sort of longer fingers and shorter thumbs than gorillas do, which is a really interesting difference. Exactly mechanically how that relates to any bone differences is something we're really interested in. So then that again, chimps and gorillas do seem different. Now, of course, they've been separated from a lot for a longer time than chimps and humans have, of course, but their differences might suggest that the ancestral condition might not have been either like either one of them or like one of the others, or maybe gorillas and humans share the ancestral condition. Mm. And from that, we're going to have to learn more about chimps and gorillas, and then maybe look at orangutans and gibbons and monkeys and other animals to piece it all together to try to fill in the gaps there. That's a really astute observation. Whoever did that should, if you're not a um, paleoanthropologist, you should become one. (laughs) Time to intern. (laughs) Um, You talked about brain size and growth over the last um, few million years. Uh, Lots of other species were evolving at the same time. Why are there no big-brained lions or other mammals that could have would have benefited from the big brain? Sure. That's a really interesting question. Humans have uniquely large and complex brains that can obviously do incredible things that no other species can do. And this has been um, obviously an incredibly important subject in studying human evolution. And what we use our brains for, for the most part, if you think about what do you spend most of your time thinking about? Maybe it's getting food, maybe it's where you have to be on time, but mostly you're thinking about your family, your friends, your business partners, your relationships, what you need to do. We are very social creatures. We, everything we do depends on sociality, depends on other people. We're extremely group dependent. We're extremely social and the brain is the tool that we use to negotiate our social environments. And, um, and that's obviously we also use it to make tools and do find food and so on and so forth. Um, and these are ideas that have fascinated us, but obviously becoming increasingly socially complex clearly has happened. Probably at a, if you look at the archaeological record, you sort of see this exponential rate, the same thing with brain size. And there seems to be sort of a positive feedback loop of being able to sort of make your way through the world, do the kinds of things that animals have to do. You have to avoid predators. You have to avoid being eaten. You have to find enough to eat yourself. You have to deal with climate, environment, and the physical world around you. Um, And you have to be able to find a mate. And you have to be able to have babies and raise the babies and so forth. And over time in human evolution, as we began to we don't know for sure. This is sort of an idea. As we became to get better at better at cooperating with each other, outcompeting other human groups, at using tools and technology and cooperation to be better at avoiding predators and finding food and all the things of Darwin's hostile forces of nature that we needed to do, what then became a real key determinant of in, of differential reproduction, of who's leaving more offspring, surviving offspring and grand offspring, became working with others and competing against the other people at whatever scale that happens to be. And as that became more and more important, selection be- for that behavior became more and more significant, and that would lead to sort of a positive feedback, if you will, to get to larger brains. That's sort of an idea that I've been thinking about for a long time, and there's a lot of other hypotheses out there. But it's essentially the sort of cooperation and working within our social groups and against 
you know, in competition and so forth. And that's how we negotiate the world today. And that I think is something that would have become increasingly important throughout human evolutionary history to lead us where we are. Yeah. It, it, It also seems like we had some kind of evolutionary versatility to develop the anatomical changes that could work with a bigger brain, like the ability to tool, to use tools or maybe vocalize language. So, yeah, you know, Absolutely. And I think, you know, certainly we see if you just look at the sort of boring old fossil record evidence, you see tools appearing maybe three and a half or so million years ago. So we'd say stone tools. And I always say, and the archaeologists may or may not like this, the stone tools are kind of important, but they're probably just really a signal that you're using all kinds of objects to get things done. We see tools get a And there's also tools around two and a half million years ago. They're still not very fancy. And then once you start to get to 1.7 ago, tools start to get more regular, more directed, clearly more sort of cognitive input needed to them. So it seems that tools actually show up with Australopiths who weren't very much brainier than apes, a little bit. As far as you could tell, the brain's a little bit larger, a little reorganized, but nothing like what we see later. And it may be that the development of technology and working with technology and the cooperation that comes with that helped influence and sort of cause more selection for the sociality that gave us that large brain. That's fascinating. All right. Um, Can we tell how the DNA changed uh, across the evolution of the the great apes? Maybe is there any signal in um, in in the genomes that might link to the phenotype of, say, changing uh, feet or bipedalism? Do we you know Do we know how what the DNA the genetic control might be underlying those phenotypic changes? I don't think that we know, but we probably not me. There are very clever people out there. There will probably eventually will be ways to look at the genetics underlying some of the anatomies we're talking about and how that varies among taxa. There's an explosion of, I talked about technology looking at morphology. In some ways, that's really the least dramatic technology we have to address questions pertinent to human evolution. But clearly, our understanding of genetics and genomics and how that work is exploding. And it's the kind of thing where the technology will get there eventually. And that's going to be another really key piece of evidence we have to sort of reconstruct ancestry. Rather than just measuring bumps on fossil bones, we can actually incorporate more genetic information and so forth. It's been, you know, genetic information has been incredibly influential in determining, in fact, that chimpanzees are more closely related to us than they are to gorillas, for example, and many more sort of sophisticated things that have come um, after that. So I hope so in the future. I think we'll get there. I don't think we're there yet. Well, more work to do. Yes. Do you think Artipithecus is a good model in some ways for our last common ancestor and why? So Artipithecus is um, a genus of animal that lived maybe sort of 5.8 to 4.4 million years ago. There were a couple of different species probably in there. And it's not nearly as well represented in the fossil record. It was just originally published only in 2009, which is not very long ago, at least in the eyes of some of us. And Artipithecus seems to be not really a committed biped. It seems to still have a grasping big toe. Some of the things that the pelvis showed, it may have been a little bit more upright, but it seems to be sort of, it's got some morphology sort of intermediate if to sort of oversimplify things a little bit between chimps and humans. And it may represent perhaps 
it's it'll be a key, I guess, to uncovering what the last common ancestor would have been like. It's too recent in time probably to be an ancestor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may actually overlap a little bit in time with Australopithecus. We're not even quite sure if that's an ancestor descendant or probably a sister group relationship there too. But Artipithes is going to be extremely influential in all of this because it seems to be sort of spending time at least part of the time more upright, but it hadn't given up the trees to spend all the time on the ground. So it's really important and it's been very influential in the literature to try to sort out some of this. And it doesn't look exactly like a chimpanzee or a gorilla in the anatomies that I've talked about at all. So it's another line of evidence suggesting that maybe the last common ancestor was not exactly as specialized in all ways as chimps and gorillas. Some of its features are much more like them, but not all of them. And that's going to be a really key um, taxon moving forward. There are more fossils that are continuing to be discovered for Artipithecus. So many of us are sort of waiting with bated breath to find out sort of more anatomical regions, body parts, and information about these. But I think, again, some of these methods of linking sort of anatomy and, I hope, behaviors with the fossils in a more sophisticated ways can add to that conversation and help enlighten us about an animal like Artipithecus, which is nothing like theirs around today and nothing like that's, that we see in the fossil record also. Yeah. So it's, it's really exciting. It can be adaptive to be a generalist. Yes. And, you know, hominins are generalists. Even being bipedal, it was, this is, there are a whole bunch of species, eight or 15 or however many there happen to be. We have some debates about exactly how many they are. But clearly, this was a way of negotiating the world that led to a whole adaptive radiation of these sort of similar but slightly different kinds of animals, experiments in being a hominin, if you will, that was facilitated by this locomotor adaptation that allowed them, these animals, to go places and do things in new ways and try out new experiments and being a hominin, if you will. So um, the idea of specialized and generalized, I use sort of locomotor specialization, for example, in chimps and gorillas, but they really have a lot of generalized characteristics also. And it's a little bit false to say this animal is specialized or generalized in all ways. Sometimes they have specializations. Our human brain is extremely, it's a specialization, but it also it lets us do generalized behaviors in some ways. So, And I think like yeah. the hands, these are... Uh, special adaptations that really allow the organism to be more adaptable and more general. Exactly. A lot of the things they could do with the hands. Exactly. And sometimes these animals, they have a specialized bit of anatomy, then it opens up new options and lets them do right. uh, more sort of generalized things, if you will. And that has that allows sometimes selection to try out sort of different combinations of features and some of which you know, our lineage obviously did pretty well. Other species went extinct, like most species do, and ours may eventually, will eventually. Yeah. Um, so it's you know, this rate. We're realizing now the other thing that's really happened here is that we don't just have one lineage of animals. We have this bushy tree and all these different animals living. We don't know if they were in the same place at the same time at all. We can't see the fossil record with that kind of resolution. But how were they experimenting with these different morphologies and how different were they? Right. What different capabilities do they have? So it's kind of fun. Sometimes discoveries happen slowly and sometimes they happen quickly. Sometimes they happen in the lab or on the computer or in the field. And as a field biologist, as somebody who loves to do field work, do you have a favorite field story? Oh, no. 
<laughs> oh, I know I'm on the spot. I can't even think of a field story right now. Um, oh no! Or a lab story, <laughs> or a, or maybe oh. maybe there's an aha moment where it uh, where a discovery was maybe unlooked for but really exciting. Um, of course, I'm not thinking of a thing off the top of my head right now. I apologize to all of you for that. Um, you know the aha moments are few and far between. They tend to be sort of incremental and results of a lot of different observations you've been thinking about for a long time and it comes together. Like for example, um, I gave a talk at the California Academy the other day and you know, I started thinking about torso shape and shoulders and rib cages and pelvises and we had one idea that we've been telling this story for very, very many years and it was really only maybe embarrassingly recently, when we started to look at the CT scans and everything put together, that it came to me that all the why questions weren't fitting the data. Wow. And in fact, we needed a new set of why questions. Um, That's great. I, my, more, my most sort of embarrassing, I thought I was super cool. I was this, I thought, hotshot undergrad and graduate student. I got this really good grad program and I was all awesome. And I was invited by a, a senior colleague named Mike Rose, who was a specialist in, in Miocene fossil ape postcranial to just work on these fossil Miocene ape of an animal called Afropithecus. And I took osteology and I got an A plus in it. And I was really good. So I get over to Kenya and I'm like knowing everything. And if any of you have taken osteology, all those little wrist bones are a bunch of fossil wrist bones. They, they, there's little blobs and you learn that the hamate looks like a ducky and it's swimming to the side it's from. So you can tell what it is. And I knew all this stuff. I was so good. And I got there and Mike got the fossils out of the vault in Kenya and he put them on the table and they don't look like human wrist bones. And I never learned what all those little bumps and joint surfaces were because I was too busy getting an A plus on the test and not paying attention to the anatomy. So maybe my aha moment there was you need to really learn anatomy of <laughs> all of these things if you're going to make any sense out of these fossils. So I scrambled and did that. And I hope I've made a little bit of good on that. I don't know. Otherwise, it just looks like gnocchi, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, what do you think? It's like, oh, hmm, very interesting. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> we got there. We got there eventually. That's great. Um, I always tease my husband that he can't dance. And he always blames it on his pelvic girdle. But I really feel like you've shown us today <laughs> that he ought to be able to dance. He I mean, ought to be right? Able to like dance. compared to some of those gorillas, right? <laughs> like he could really shake a thing or two. He ought to be able to move his hips, dance yeah. around. You bet. Yeah. Um, so on that note, the a little other... bit about human variation. Like, is there a lot of variation within humans? Yeah. I interested. Yes. Yeah. Oh, there's huge amounts of variation and variation is underlies everything we do. Yeah. You don't go out and just measure one. For example, the yeah. human, you know, I'm, I'm all fancy showing this fancy CT technology. We get this human and we do all these cool things to it. And then we look at the attachment of the hand bone, one of the big muscles, the opponent's muscle or the adductor muscle that pulls your thumb across your palm. It's really important. And in this particular human, it isn't normal. Oh, <laughs> So we know there's lots of variation out there and it's going to affect things differently. And so right. in science, we try to look at a bunch of different, as many individuals as we can, excuse me, sometimes we can, sometimes we can, to get an idea of that variation. 
but some of the variation in your dancing ability yeah. is is up here. <laughs> it's in your brain and your training and your practice. And we can't see inside the brain of fossils. We can't tell when your husband's ancient ancestors and fossil relatives would have started being able to dance or not able right. to dance. One thing that's really cool about hands and feet, though, which is really interesting that we can't take to the fossils, is you can look at where the nerves from the fingers map to the brain. Wow. And we know this in, in modern animals and humans and so forth. And there's a special spot in your brain for every finger. And if you look at, um, say, fossil monkeys, you just see basically one glob for the toes. It's just a big claw, just grasp. But in humans, actually, there's a separate spot for the big toe, which might be associated with stabilizing the foot and moving around in locomotion. And that's something we'll never see in the fossil record. But looking at how even boring motor activities as opposed to interesting social cultural activities happen in the brain as something that also we can look to more how we'll translate that to the fossil record is a little bit more challenging because we, it, you have to look for correlates in the bones, and that's going to be more challenging to do. So it's, it's all up here for your husband, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. If you're listening yeah. out there. <laughs> <laughs> but you've really renewed my faith in the big toe, too. Like, I would, I would have <laughs> traded my big toe for a gorilla toe in a heartbeat. I'm really disappointed in my big toe because I can't grasp branches with it. So I'm, I'm really... But you can find shoes. my faith. Well, that's true. You can it's find shoes. Find. The girl had a hard time finding your shoes. Yeah. It would be really convenient in some ways to have four hands instead of feet. Um, but alas, alas, you chose the wrong evolutionary lineage. I probably didn't choose. <laughs> I would like to thank you so much, Dr. Ward. Um, Carol Ward, Curator, Distinguished Professor of Pathology and Anatomical Sciences at the University of Missouri recent uh, laureate of the Leakey Foundation's Gordon P. Getty Award. And uh, I would also like to thank you all. Thank you. Good night. Please join me in thanking Dr. Thank Martin. you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.